a true crime story and we drink. The following content may be disturbing to some. Discretion is advised. If you choose to enjoy one of our themed margaritas, please ensure that you are of legal drinking age and have fun but drink responsibly. On December 10th, 2003, Kent Whitaker, his wife Trisha, and his sons, Bart and Kevin, headed to a local Papado's restaurant, about a 10-minute drive from their house in Sugarland, a wealthy suburb of Houston, Texas. They were celebrating. Bart was graduating from Sam Houston State University with honors. Before dinner, they had gifted him a $4,000 Rolex watch, something he'd asked for for graduation. It would be the last happy moments they would share together as a family. Today's margarita is a nod to the great state of Texas and the prickly pear. The prickly pear is a cactus grown in arid climates in North America. In the United States, it's found in southern states like Texas. It produces a fruit, which is, fun fact, known as the tuna. Prickly pear tuna is especially popular in Mexico and is made into candy, appetizers, salads, main courses, and even more. So for today's margarita, we're going to make pretty much a traditional margarita. So we have two parts tequila, one part lime juice, one part triple sec, and then instead of simple syrup, we're gonna do one part prickly pear syrup. I found this particular brand of prickly pear syrup online. Although I'm pretty sure if you're crafty, you could probably whip it up yourself. You can find prickly pear, cactus, and tuna in grocery stores here in Texas. Because today's prickly pear syrup is so thick, I'm actually gonna stir this one. Remember, I know absolutely nothing about <laughs> mixing drinks. But we're gonna stir it. We're gonna, we're gonna stir in that syrup. We will then bougie strain over fresh ice. And today, ooh, that's pretty. I am in a salt-rimmed glass. If you're looking for a book recommendation, I've got one. It's called Murder by Family, and it's actually written by Kent Whitaker. It will give you the first-person narrative of a true crime that we always crave but rarely get. You should definitely check it out. The Whitaker family was just about as all-American as they come. After Kent and Patricia married in 1975, they moved to Sugarland, Texas in 1983. The small town of 8,000 actually exploded in population to almost 75,000 by the year 2000. But even still, a crime like murder was exceptionally rare in Sugarland. There'd only been a handful of murders in the entire 20 years that the Whitakers lived there. They had two sons, Thomas Bartlett, who went by Bart, was born in 1979, and a few years later, they had their younger son, Kevin. The boys were fast playmates and they grew up very close to each other. They played sports, and Bart and Kent actually 
bicycled together for thousands of miles. They rode 13 MS 150s together. Trisha was an elementary school teacher and Kent was a comptroller for a family owned construction business. They went on family vacations all around the United States from New York City to Colorado. When Bart and his friends were in high school, they'd figured out a way to bypass the school's burglar alarms by going in through the skylights. Maybe a harmless prank in and of itself, but on the way out, Bart and his friends decided to steal a few computers, a crime that earned Bart a deferred adjudication and four years on probation. The event embarrassed Trisha particularly. She didn't even want to leave the house to go to the grocery store. She really and truly felt like she had failed as a parent to Bart. They transferred Bart to a private Christian school for his senior year, and he seemed to improve. He graduated and enrolled in Baylor University in Waco, Texas. His parents really believed that he had turned things around. Near the end of his sophomore year, however, police were alerted to an alleged plot that Bart had come up with to kill his parents. There was a convoluted story about Bart and his roommate getting drunk, sort of getting into a fight, and then them seeing a clip of the Menendez brothers, which is a, a story that is worthy of an episode itself, um, but then Bart saying that they had gotten it all wrong and that he would be able to do it better. A girlfriend of theirs had dropped by and overheard the conversation, and it alarmed her enough to the point where she, she notified the Waco police. Bart passed off as a, as a misunderstanding, but perhaps it was foreshadowing. Kevin, Bart's little brother, graduated from high school a few years later, and as he walked across the graduation stage, he actually wore a six-foot electrical cord instead of those cords that you earned because he hadn't earned any. He was quite the jokester. He was also a daredevil. They liked to ride jet skis, and he was quite risky on the water. He enrolled at Texas A&M University the following spring. Meanwhile, Bart transferred to Sam Houston State University for his senior year. He moved into his family's lake house and started classes. He also made a whole new group of friends, including a couple of guys named Chris Brashear and Stephen Champagne. He finished his junior and senior year, and after he finished his last set of exams, he called his mom, and they agreed to go to Papados to celebrate. Trouble is, Bart wasn't graduating. He wasn't even enrolled. Instead, he'd spent the last two years working, but also plotting to kill his own family. After the dinner plans were set, Bart picked up Stephen and Chris, and they drove to a shopping center in a nearby town, where they stole some license plates off of a car. Stephen put those license plates onto his mom's Toyota Camry. Bart headed to his house in Sugarland with Chris laying on the floorboard of his Yukon, and Stephen following behind in the Camry. Bart went inside to greet his family, and Stephen remained laying on the floorboard. Bart went inside to his family, and Chris remained laying on the floorboard. Stephen parked his car on a nearby street to wait. After the family headed to dinner, Chris got out of Bart's car and went in through a back door. Bart had left it unlocked and had also made sure that the alarm was disarmed. Chris turned off all the lights in the house and Stephen waited in the getaway car. Chris went to put on latex gloves, but realized that somewhere he had lost one. So he put on one latex glove and used that one hand to do things throughout the house, including going upstairs 
into the family gun safe and pulling out the family gun, exactly where Bart had told him it would be. He loaded the clip with hollow point bullets. When the family returned home, they went into the house. Bart pretended that he'd left his cell phone in the car, so he went back to the car to get his cell phone. Kevin walked into the front door first and was shot and killed instantly. Trisha cried, oh no, and quickly a second shot rang out, hitting Trisha, its intended target. As Kent walked in, he was shot in the upper chest and fell flat on his back. Bart rushed into the house and pretended to scuffle with Chris. Chris shot him in the arm, which was the plan, but also then dropped the gun. He reached around in the dark trying to grab the gun and grabbed Bart's cell phone by mistake instead of the gun. There were four shots and four direct hits. Chris ran out of the house and into Stephen's getaway car and they drove away. They placed all the evidence into plastic Ziploc bags, including the one latex glove, Bart's cell phone, and a water bottle that they had drank out of. They then put those Ziploc bags into a duffel bag and then threw the duffel bag into Lake Conroe. Trisha and Kent were life-flighted to a nearby hospital where Trisha was pronounced dead. Bart was also transported to the same hospital for treatment. When Kent was laying in his hospital bed, after hearing that both his son and his wife were dead, he recommitted even deeper into his faith and made a decision. He decided that no matter who was responsible for the shooting, he was going to forgive them. Little did he know how hard that was going to be. Within hours of the shooting, police began to suspect Bart as being involved in the murders. They kept many of the facts that led them to this conclusion from Kent. In addition to that weird situation with his fight with his roommate, evidently two years prior, Bart had tried to hire one of his friends to murder his family. This friend came forward to the police almost immediately after hearing about the murders. Apparently, among other similarities, this plot had his friend shooting Bart in the arm to remove suspicion of Bart in the murder. Hmm. Bart was also to give the gunman the alarm code and a diagram of the house. It turns out it was a pretty identical plot to what had actually happened. Later, the police would learn of another plot from December of 2000, where Bart had actually hired someone who had tried to crawl through Kent and Trisha's bathroom window, but it had set off the alarm, and so he ran away. Seems like Bart had been trying to get his family murdered for quite some time. For Kent's part, he could not and would not believe that Bart was involved. Both of them moved right back into the house where the murders had occurred. They were only hospitalized for a few days, but thanks to family and friends who had scrubbed the house clean, they were able to move right back in. The memories lingered though, obviously. Bart and Kent cleaned up the Christmas decorations that Trisha had put out painstakingly just a few weeks before. Kent boxed up a Christmas village that Kevin put out meticulously each and every year, and it's never come out of the box since. Kent and Bart settled into a new normalcy. Bart proposed to his longtime girlfriend of five years. They threw a birthday party to honor Kevin at the Houston Rodeo, watching one of his favorite musical artists, Pat Green. On June 7th, 
2004, a police investigator called Kent and insisted that he come into the station to speak with them. He made it very clear that he was worried about Kent's safety. Remember, Kent and Bart were living together. On June 10th, Kent did go into the station. The police insisted that Bart was dangerous, but could not or would not provide any proof. I mean, they probably couldn't. They were in the middle of an investigation. Still, Kent didn't believe them. Around this same time, Bart got an idea from an acquaintance that he might just want to run away to Mexico to get away from all of this. In Mexico, the acquaintance said, it was easy to disappear. So that's what Bart did. On June 27th, without a word to his father or his fiancée, Bart disappeared. After paying a few thousand dollars for fake identification, he became Rudy Rios and fled to Mexico. Police found his 2001 Yukon running and with the driver's side door open in an apartment complex parking lot. While in Mexico, he claimed to be an American soldier who had gone AWOL to avoid being conscripted back into the army. This had the added benefit of explaining his arm injury and was enough to keep people from being too suspicious. He dated a young girl and went to movies and danced in clubs. He worked odd jobs, got his hair cut, and got a tan. One night, after his girlfriend had had a fight with her parents, he declared, quote, don't be angry at your parents. If you want, we can kill them, end quote. After just over a year, Mexican immigration officials arrested Bart and brought him straight back to the United States. In September of 2005, he was handed over to U.S. authorities at the border in Laredo, Texas, and was immediately arrested for capital murder. In mid-September 2005, Chris Brashear and Stephen Champagne had also been arrested in their roles of the murders of Trisha and Kevin Whitaker. It's important to note that in Texas, everyone involved with a crime, including murder, is held equally culpable in the eyes of the law. This means everyone from the shooter to the getaway driver to, in Bart's case, the person who came up with the plot. The DA decided not to seek the death penalty in the case against Chris, who was the actual shooter, but he didn't make the same declaration in the case against Bart. This put Kent in an absolutely gut-wrenching situation. I mean, as if this whole situation isn't an absolutely gut-wrenching situation. He'd already lost his wife and his child. And remember, Kent had decided to forgive whomever was responsible for their deaths. And that included his son. From the moment that Bart was arrested, Kent worked tirelessly to spare Bart from the death penalty. The DA refused to accept Bart's lawyer's offer of life in prison with 40 year stacked sentences, which meant that Bart would never get out of prison. In July of 2006, Bart wrote his dad a letter. In that letter, he talks a lot about his inability to really feel emotions. He even talks about the fact that he says that he loves his father, but what he really means is that he has a lot of respect for his father and what his father does. More on this later. During the trial, which began in March of 2007, Kent was in a very crucial and unique situation. He was the chief victim, the primary witness for the prosecution, and the primary witness for the defense. 
This was tremendously difficult for him because he was not allowed to read about any parts of the trial or attend any parts of the trial that he wasn't testifying in. Later, several of his friends and family who had attended the entire trial said it was a horrific and excruciating experience. So I suppose maybe he was spared some of that. A key piece of forensic evidence in the trial was actually that duffel bag that Stephen and Chris had thrown into Lake Conroe. When they pulled the duffel bag out of the lake, they found the Ziploc bag intact. And inside they found the latex glove, the cell phone that belonged to Bart, and they were able to extract DNA from the lip of the water bottle that had been drinking out of and then resealed and thrown into the lake. They were able to do this even after those Ziploc bags spent several years in the bottom of the lake. Bart's guilt or innocence really wasn't ever in question. And so the guilty verdict wasn't surprising or shocking for anyone. The only question was whether or not Bart would receive the death penalty. Chris Brashear, remember he was the shooter, had already received a life sentence as part of a plea agreement. And Stephen Champagne, the getaway driver, received 15 years in prison, in part due to being the chief witness for the prosecution in Bart's case. In less than two days, the jury deliberations on sentencing ended with a decision for death. Kent would spend the next 11 years working to save Bart's life. He spoke passionately across the country about forgiveness, and about his desire to save his son's life. He appealed to lawmakers and to the news media. The legal appeals were taken all the way to the US Supreme Court, where in 2017, they refused to even hear the case. On November 1st, 2017, all appeals exhausted, his death warrant was signed, and his execution was scheduled. The date would be February 22nd, 2018, at six o'clock p.m. On that day, his father decided last minute not to attend the execution, taking the advice of many people who told them that he shouldn't be there. Instead, his new wife insisted that she attend the execution on behalf of the family. With hope completely run out, at 5.15 p.m., just 45 minutes before the scheduled execution, Governor Greg Abbott commuted Bart Whitaker's death sentence to life imprisonment without parole. This would be the first time that Governor Abbott would make such a decision. He cited Kent's passionate opposition as a deciding factor for him. In a statement, Bart said, quote, I'm thankful, not for me, but for my dad. Whatever punishment I would have or will receive is just but my dad did nothing wrong. The system worked for him today, end quote. Okay, we gotta talk a little bit about Bart's motive here. For what it's worth, Kent did not believe that hatred or greed fueled Bart's motivation in creating and executing this plot. I'm not as convinced, but then again, I didn't raise Bart. What I actually think is that Bart has a textbook case of psychopathy. So uh, how do we know if someone actually has psychopathy versus if we just say, hey, he's a psychopath. Well, lucky for us, there's a 20-point checklist. The PCLR checklist, to be exact. There are 20 traits, so um, let's do a rapid-fire assessment of Bart, shall we? Glib and superficial charm. Grandiose estimation of self. Need for stimulation. 
Pathological lying. Cunning and manipulativeness. Lack of remorse. Superficial emotional responsiveness. Callousness and lack of empathy. Parasitic lifestyle. Poor behavioral controls. Sexual promiscuity. Early behavior problems. Lack of realistic long-term goals. Impulsivity. Irresponsibility. Failure to accept responsibility for actions. Many short-term marital relationships. Juvenile delinquency. Revocation of conditional release. And criminal versatility. Okay, so the scoring is a little more complicated than my system, but you get the idea. I think he meets quite a few of the criteria. And I'm gonna be real with you, maybe it's just my personal bias, but I don't think anyone that grows up in the loving, stable environment that Bart grew up in could really do the thing that Bart did without some level of disordered thinking. And I think Bart named his own disorder in the letter that he wrote to his father, in which he said he couldn't really even feel emotions and he didn't even know what the word love really meant. But how does something like this happen? Well, in short, sociopaths are bred and psychopaths are born. Psychopathy is the product of genes. It doesn't matter how you were raised. These tendencies are cooked in from the very beginning. So what do you think? Do you think there was something like psychopathy that caused Bart's descent into murder? Do you believe, as I do, that there had to be some sort of disordered thinking that caused these actions to take place? Or is it something else entirely? Greed? And what do you think about Kent? Do you think you could do what he did and offer unconditional forgiveness to the person who is responsible for the murder of his wife and his child? Do you think you could fight and advocate for that person to be spared the death penalty? Do you think that that person being his son made it easier or harder for him? Kent now has a Christian ministry with his wife, Tanya, and speaks across the country about forgiveness. Bart currently lives in the McConnell unit in Beeville, Texas, in solitary confinement. He has become a prolific writer in prison after receiving his bachelor's degree in English and sociology and his master's degree in English, all while in prison. He founded an inmate blog in 2007 and has won numerous prizes for his writing while in prison. Thanks for hanging out with me. We're building a fun community on social media, and I certainly hope you'll join us. Links to our Instagram and Facebook are in the description box below. So many of you have been rating and reviewing, and I'm really grateful because it helps to spread the word about Margs and Mayhem. If you haven't done that yet, I'll bake you cookies if you do. Or better yet, I'll make you a margarita. Speaking of margaritas, if you've got a good idea for one, I'd love to hear it. And of course I'd love to hear your ideas for cases too. And if you thought we had a psychopath this week, just wait for next week. Oh, and the margarita that I'm most scared of thus far, bananas. I'll see you next week. And remember, there are always alternatives to murdering your whole family.